You've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. Cripple Content Creations and Podcast Jukebox present Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability, sexuality, and everything in between. This is a show that started out only talking about sex and disability. It was a podcast that was dedicated to exploring the ins and outs of sex and disability because we don't talk about that hardly at all. But as the show has grown, I realized that Disability After Dark could shine a light on so many other things about disability we don't talk about, and that was really exciting. So, now, this show is a show that will shine a light on the experience of disability, whether we're talking about sexuality, accessibility, or anything and everything in between. Come shine a bright light on all things disability with me, your host, Andrew Gerza. Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza. The podcast shining a bright light on disability, sexuality, and everything in between. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. I want to tell you all about a really awesome deal that I got from my friends and new sponsors, Adam and Eve, the number one adult toy superstore. They reached out to me and they said, Andrew, we love Disability After Dark. We love your show. We love what you're doing. And we were wondering if you wanted to run some ads for us. And I was like, fuck yes, I do. But what are my awesome listeners going to get if I run ads for you? What are they going to get out of this? And they came back with a really fantastic deal that I want to share with you right now. I hope you're getting comfy, cozy, and crippled because this deal is pretty great. If you go to AdamEve.com, you can pick out almost any item in the store, almost any one item in the store, for 50% off. That means you can get one dildo, one lube, and one thing of lingerie if you want for 50% off. And then, once you get that one item for half price, they throw in even more free stuff. Let me tell you all about it. Okay, so you got your one item at half price in your bag and you're ready to go, but guess what? This offer also includes 10 free items on top of that that other item. So you get one free item for penis havers, one free item for vulva havers, one free item for couples, and then you also get six free movies from the AdamEve.com website. You can get your favorite porn or an educational film. I love free movies. They're so awesome. This is such a great deal. And then, on top of that, you also get free shipping. What could be better? This is such a great offer. So, to redeem this great offer, what you're going to do is you're going to go to AdamEve.com. 
you're going to go to checkout and you're going to type in dark pod. That's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout. And you're going to get one item, almost anything in the store at 50% off. And then you're going to get those 10 free gifts, absolutely free as part of your offer. This is such a great deal. And this is just for you, Disability After Dark listeners. And I hope you run over to AdamEve.com and take advantage of it right now. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. My name is Andrew Gerza, and I am your cripple content creator, your disabled dick smith, and everything in between. Get comfy, cozy, and crippled, and let's shine a bright light on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark. One of the things I don't think we talk about enough when it comes to disability is the intersectionality of race and disability and how a lot of us in the disability community deal with racism within this community. And I wanted to take a deep dive in this episode today and shine a bright light on these issues and talk to somebody who I really admire doing work around racism and disability and like race culture and disability and someone who's just a great activist in this field. And I also wanted to talk to them about pop culture. And so let me tell you all about today's guest. On the episode today, I sit down with the activist and my new friend, Vilissa Thompson, as we tackle racism within the disability community. And I wanted to shine a big bright light on this because I don't think it's something we talk about enough. And Vilissa and I had a really important conversation about racism, in the disability community, how we have to call it out, how it happens all the time, how pervasive it is. And we also talk about it in relation to pop culture because when I interviewed Vilisa, we talked about one of the new episodes of the Queer Eye reboot where they interviewed a person named Wesley Hamilton who is a person of color who was paralyzed and he started a company called Disabled But Not Really and many people who watched his episode said they didn't like that he was using the experience of being of being disabled to create a company called Disabled But Not Really, but we really ended up having a conversation about how that was anti-blackness in the disability community, and I felt it was important to have Bylissa tell us about this and share this these sentiments with us and how we in the disability community can do better by our our people our peers of color I guess you could say I think we disabled white folk have to sit down sometime and shut up and and Vilissa made that very clear and, t- and talks about that we also talk about how Vilissa works in social work what it's like to be a black femme person in the south we have a really really nuanced fun conversation and I just love chatting with her, and I know you'll love listening to this interview too. So here's my interview with activist by Lisa Thompson right now on Disability After Dark. Right quick though, before you get to the this episode, if you want to go on Netflix and, and stream the, the episode we're talking about today with respect to Wesley Hamilton and Disabled But Not Really, you can go to Netflix.com and look for 
for Season 4, Episode 4 of the Queer Eye Reboot, and that's the one we'll be talking about today. So before you listen to this one, make sure you watch that first, or if you've seen it already, you can just listen along. But here's my interview now with Vilissa, and I hope you enjoy it. Vilissa Thompson, hello. Hello, Andrew. How are you? Good. I'm so excited to have you on Disability After Dark. Thank you for coming on today. We're going to have such a fun time, and you are somebody that I've followed on Twitter for, wow, for years now. Pretty much everyone that listens to the show knows that all of my guests, I find them on Twitter, and I'm like, you're awesome. Come be my friend and come <laughs> on the show. But you are somebody that I've followed literally for, like, I want to say four or five years at the least now. Yeah. Um, yeah. On the Tumblr days when Tumblr was popping. Yeah, that's, I- that's right. Back in the day. And we 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 would tweet back and forth a little bit, but that, I mean, that's about all we did. And then, then something came along and there was an opportunity for us to work together. And that's what we're going to do today. And yeah. I am the most excited to do this with you. But before we get into that, I want to have you introduce yourself and tell us kind of who you are and what you do. I am about to be 34 years old, proud millennial, proud southerner, black disabled woman. I have osteogenesis imperfecta, which is a fancy semantic way of saying brittle bones. Um, I'm also a little woman and hard of hearing. Those are my disabled identities. Um, You know, I'm a social worker and I started my uh, blog organization, Wrap Your Voice, in 2013 as a way to bridge a gap that I saw in not seeing enough disability representation from the lens of a black disabled perspective, particularly a woman of feminine perspective. And since then it has grown to me creating the black disabled woman syllabus, to me creating the hashtag disability to white, to become a speaker, presenter, and well-known troublemaker on the internet. <laughs> I am so excited by all those things, especially the troublemaker, because I feel that way too. Yeah. As a queer person, I as a queer disabled person, I always feel like I'm like, oh, gotta stir the pot here, gotta <laughs> make, gotta make some waves, and it's partially because like, we don't come, like, let's remember, we don't come into this space wanting to be troublemakers. We come in because we're like, where are the, where are we? Where's our, where's our space? Oh, there's not one. Fuck! I guess I'm gonna have to make one now, and then that's what happens. Exactly. I know for me, I just wanted to share my story, but then that kind of made some white disabled folks mad. So I'm just like, well, I'm just going to bathe in your tears and just let you be upset (laughs) and let that be that. (laughs) So, but I'm so confused. Why would disabled white folks be mad that you want to, why would disabled white people be mad that you, you want to share your story? Like why? Because they feel excluded and the white fragility and white feelings, (laughs) you know, overall. And I think that's, white disabled folks don't realize that their disability doesn't nullify the white privilege. And I think that's a really big part of it is understanding that you can be disabled and still have privileges. Like for me, as a black disabled woman, I have education privilege. I have um, neurotypical privilege, you know, being cisgender, being heterosexual, those being a light skin, a light skin black woman, all those things are privileges, you know, and none of it are things that, I've asked for. Most of it outside of my education are things that just make up who I am. But there's no shame in that. And I think think that white people, particularly those I've encountered who are disabled, 
don't want to recognize that you can be both the oppressed and the oppressor yep. to someone and something and not want to think that because they're disabled that they're like the other white people and like yeah like you're still a white person you still benefit from whiteness you still benefit from a white supremacy society like that doesn't discount anything just because you're disabled and honestly a lot of white sale folks don't want to recognize race we have this whole pushback of not wanting to discuss anything outside of disability i'm sure you find that in talking about you know queer stuff you know All the like time. yeah yeah you know not wanting to do that and it's like you know i always say as a black disabled person i cannot fragment my identities when i go out in the world people see all of that and depends on what they may be most uncomfortable with or to the extreme hate, they're going to treat me that way. So talking about race or talking about gender or sexuality is important to me and my journey. And we need space for that. But, you know, I think that white disabled folks have always seen themselves and only seen their stories. And I think that particularly now with social media, you know, is really changing that they're being forced to pay attention to other people. And I think many of them don't want to have to do that at all. They just want to be in a little bubble. And that's very dangerous. You know, that doesn't progress the movement. That doesn't protect anybody. And if your agenda is the only one that matters, then how can you say that you have a very inclusive, supportive movement? No, you can't say that at all. No, so. I mean, I, I, that's, that, there was so much to unpack there. Like, yeah, I think that I really agree with you. And I think that white disabled people and I did I did a disability awareness tweet about this the other day on my on my social media disabled white people need to sit the fuck down and shut up sometimes like really and truly I'm a white disabled person so I I will say that there are moments where as a white disabled person I have to sit down and not speak exactly and I don't I don't understand why how or why that's so hard you know it doesn't have to be all about you yeah even like as a, you know, cisgender person or heterosexual person, you know, it's my place to sit down and hush when queer folks or trans folks are talking and to just listen and learn and do better. You know, yeah. we all have these things to where we can do better, even like for people who are in our community who are neuroatypical or neurodivergent. You know, as somebody who's neurotypical, you know, it's my place, like you said, to hush and be quiet and just listen and be like, okay, how can I do better to not do harm, either intentionally or unintentionally? How can I better support those who have this identity to show the solidarity and community? Like, I don't know, maybe it's because of the background that I have, you know, with being a social worker and psychology, just kind of thinking about community in a different framework you know, and, and coming into this space, maybe that's just my understanding of how that works better. But it's really amazing to see people who don't get it at all and don't make an attempt to get it. Yeah, and I think, you know, and I feel like that's a big problem in the disability community because we're so often asking people to understand our experience of being disabled and, oh my God, you're an able. Like we, we throw around the word ableist like it's, you know, yeah. like it's candy. And we do so without thinking, and I've done it, I'm totally guilty of it, so I can cop to it, you know, we think about that word as something we can use to to demonize somebody when we haven't always looked at their, what the reasons are behind it, and I think the same thing comes to, when it comes to, like, to, to our whiteness, we have to realize that we, in my case, we have to realize that, like, 
it's okay to let other people in. They're not steal. They're not trying to steal our stuff. They're just trying to get. <laughs> like it doesn't make any sense anyway. So I just I, I totally agree with you. And I one of one of my big questions was, do you think the disability community has a race problem? And I guess the answer I guess you answered that for us. Yeah, it's a hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's that you know, and and it's just because people haven't been challenged, you know, and people haven't been challenged in many ways publicly for us. For everyone to see, like, you know, we just, this summer we had a recent incident of a leader whose racism and xenophobia was put on display. And this person has been known to do certain things for a while. You know, there's been rumbles. Oh, are we talking about, I think I know what we're talking about. We're talking about the. I'm not naming names, but you know what. I mean, I don't, I, I know what we're talking about. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I saw that. And I, like, no. it, I, it was, again, because I, I also focus, I don't, I don't. I don't, I was just surprised to see that so publicly had happened. And I was like, wow, okay, all right. And so, like, it reaffirmed, yeah, we do have a race problem in this community. And we do have to talk about it, just like we have a homophobia problem in the yeah. in the disability community. Yeah. Similar things have happened to me where people have been like, oh, you're not, you're not queer, you're not gay. It's just because you can't find the right person. So let me, like find you somebody and it's like no 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 I know what I am like why do you, why are you trying to discount that so I think yeah. white white cis hetero disabled people need to really take many seats and just be really quiet um, I yeah. wanted to touch on something you mentioned though you you said you're a social worker and you did psychology right mm-hmm. um, I want I'm curious because I know that academic ableism is a real thing and it happens all the time how is it for you kind of studying and how is it for you like getting going through the ranks to become a social worker how did you find your experiences as a multiply disabled person in that space well luckily for me I, my alma mater went to university you know had a disability coordinator who was also disabled and that made a very big difference in how disability was understood on campus and the support that we received uh, sadly, she's no longer there. She transitioned to another university. But during the time I had for both undergrad and grad, I went um, went to Winter for both. You know, it was just really amazing to just see how it was prioritized, how people took it seriously, how she was very passionate to ensure that us as students had what we needed. Um, I had the opportunity to kind of to really kind of get to know her for some assignments when I interviewed her and just learn about her journey because she went to college pre ADA. So she really shared with me about, and that's the American with Disabilities Act, for yeah. those who know. And she just really shared with me about what her college experience was like as a disabled person where there was a law that didn't exist and her having to navigate that and get into her identity. So I think it really makes a difference when we have disabled folks in that type of role you know, at these institutions that really have to define the culture of what disability is and how to support disabled students. So my experience is a little more unique than others. Um, I honestly didn't realize that many people didn't have that type of experience until I started to meet folks online and they would talk about, you know, going to college and not having their, you know, accommodations respected or not really knowing what type of accommodations they needed. And it was just very surprising and upsetting because it's like, wow, you know, if I had chose a different school to attend, my experience as a disabled student would have been greatly different. Um, and, and then I would, and it's 
upsetting to realize that because everybody should have the same opportunity to succeed and thrive on campus. But it doesn't exist that way. And also with Winthrop, it has a huge uh, black population. Uh, I think it has, at the time I went, which was in the mid-2000s, so I'm showing my age here a little bit, um, <laughs> at the highest number of the black folks, you know, more than USC, University of South Carolina. So, you know, having a disability population, having a black population, you know, it really made my PWI, um, which is a predominantly white institution experience, um, not as stressful or lonesome as some people's experiences are. So, you know, I really enjoyed college, uh, grad school. Um, going within psychology as my undergrad major and a minor in African studies and then going into grad school for a master's in social work, it really showed me how those two fields view disability, the language of disability. Uh, psychology has some has ableism within it. Um, Definitely, for sure. We, we look at um, uh, particularly um, mental health and how people's brains work and, you know, diagnosing folks and then switching over to social work, uh, realizing that the ableism looks different. It's not necessarily within the teaching, although the teaching is more medical model based within both fields. Right. But it's in, you know, sometimes with how people understand the disability um, and how they may engage with clients due to that medical model outdated disability um, of teaching. So the ableism functions differently within both of those fields. And so when I started Rapid Voice, one of the things I wanted to do was teach social workers about identity first, yeah, identity first language and, you know, that disability is a culture and an identity and about the different issues of disability that we work with them because no one's really doing that within a profession like that. And that's a gap that I had wanted to start Feeling, and I started doing that by going to um, social work conferences here in South Carolina and just kind of building from there. So, you know, within those areas, within academia and outside of it, you know, the ableism luckily hasn't um, impacted me severely to stymie my progress. Right. But I am very aware of what that ableism looks like, how it's taught and how it can breed and when people go out in the field and engage with us, how that can be harmful because many of us in this community do have not so great experiences with social workers and other health professionals because of the lack of understanding about what disability is that's outside of a diagnosis. And so there's a lot of work to be done within psychology and social work and the other health professionals, even of course, medical professionals to really stop harm being done and to really allow disabled folks like myself who are who are within these fields to come in and kind of recalibrate the thinking about disability and to hopefully shift the dial so that it's more inclusive and less ableist. That I mean that's a tall order for sure, but I, I think it's it, really like I'm really excited that you as a professional because I have a friend who is also a social worker with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And it's such a rare 
it's rare, but the more and more I talk to people with disabilities, it's like, oh yeah, I'm doing social work because I want to change the game. So to know that there are like a number of people who are wanting to do this, and you're you know you're one of the very few that I've talked to that wants to do this, I think it's such a powerful thing, and I'm excited to see where that'll go for you. Yes, definitely. And honestly, it's easier to manipulate the inside when you are on the inside. You know, I think that's the advantage point of being a professional is that, you know, sadly, they'll listen to me before they'll listen to you or anyone else. Yeah. So, again, it's using that type of privilege in a way of being able to navigate that space to really do the work on the inside. Yeah. And I think, you know, I just think that the more that we can get disabled people on the inside of whatever profession we're talking about to shift to shift all institutional ableism in a way that is that puts us first really and truly I think is is awesome oh it's definitely um I want to shift back to the racism question for one second because there's a part of the question that I didn't ask you so we know we've talked about how the disabled community can definitely be racist the answer is yes um (laughs) other than what we're about to talk about today can you cite some examples of of racism that you've seen recently within the disability community? Well, I think I want to kind of go back to leadership. I had touched on that a little bit. I think, to me, the most um, startling examples have been racist leadership. Um, Having leaders who are well-known within their racism still able to thrive in this space and people either being scared to say something or may have said something and get shot down. I think that we have a lot of coddling and protecting harmful people in this space, which breeds the harm, the harm that has reigned freely. And I think it's time for us to start really calling it out. You know, even if it's your friends, you know, if you have a problematic friend, that's for you to really handle and to get them together. I think it's also been very tiring for disabled people of color to have to always speak out about these leaders who have a track record of doing harm and white folks just kind of being like shrugging their shoulders like what what do you want me to do (laughs) (laughs) you know as a white person because we all know that some white people will only listen to other white people and again using your voice in that way or using your power you know if you are a leader in something and you know, you can speak up on those things. That's important as well. Um, you know, that's, you know, when it comes to the leadership, that's what it looks like when it comes to racism. And also the kind of over-whiteness of leadership as well. We don't have a lot of um, people of color within these bigger organizations as leaders. We have a lot of them in the grassroots organizations, you know, those that, you know, came forth within the last decade. But when you think of the major nonprofits, there's not many of us in those positions. So that in many ways perpetuates the over whiteness of disability. People, when disability comes to mind, they think of a white disabled man or a white disabled woman. They don't see disabled people of color, you know, being a part of these entities that's not just administrative staff yeah. or have low level positions. You know, there's a lot of us who have you know, professional backgrounds or just a lot of knowledge or experience in something that should be given the chance to run these organizations or receive the funding to do that. And and I don't think there's enough space or even mentorship given to disabled people of color who have that desire 
um, to lead in that way. So in many ways, I think some of the racism manifests in not supporting you say what people of color and what they want to do professionally or just what they want to do within their activism or advocacy work, just not really taking it seriously or validating them in the ways that white disabled folks may receive. And how do you think that, and I'm going to, I think we'll touch on this a little bit in a, in this, in what we're talking about today with, with Queer Eye, but um, how do you think that we can, other than putting black disabled people in positions of power, which I'm totally here for and why haven't we done more of this and can we do more of this and can somebody do this please uh how do you think we can work on our racism within the community i said be honest be honest about that there is racism in the community i think we have a lot of folks particularly those who may be a little older who are steadfast and not rocking the boat and that's not getting us anywhere that's how we got here in the first place so re- recognizing that there is racism, that you can be disabled and racist, that you can be disabled and a white supremacist, that you can be disabled and do harm. You know, we are not these in- innocent beings that we try to get society to realize that we're not. You know, you can't have it both ways. You can't say that we're not innocent and then feign innocence when you are called out on your mess. You can't, it can't happen like that. So I think you that can't use your ableism to hide your racism. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that that's number one. I think number two, like I said before, is just to call people out, you know, put them out there and let them know like, hey, if you continue to do this, I'm not supporting your work and actually meaning that. I think we have a lot of outcry from folks who say that they're not going to back a leader, but then when things die down, they'll go back being a friend or they'll go back supporting them. And you can't have it that way. You know, if you, if you know somebody's harmful, you're going to have to draw a line. And for me right now, you either for me or against me, particularly in the way that this, that America is right now. I cannot deal with white people or even uh, non-white people of color, you know, or people of color just really standing by leadership that's harmful and particularly when leadership is known to be anti-black or xenophobic homophobic queerphobic whatever you know i can't rely on you whether you're a person of color or white i can't get behind what you're doing like things are too dire right now in this country especially to call white folks of any background and to just say oh you know you know, they don't mean that or they're my friend. I don't care if they are your friend. Your friend is trash. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you, particularly if you're a person of color, you should not put any, be putting your neck on the line for trash white people. Like, that's ridiculous. And that's a big frustration that I have, you know, with people of color who do this. You do that in this space is going up the bat for these problematic white folks. And it's like, you are really putting your reputation and your hard work on the line for somebody who would not do the same for you. And that's really upsetting to see, you know, particularly when you hear things like I do about the way certain people move, how certain people are treated. And then I see them doing that for that particular person. It's like, gosh, you know, I don't know how, why you are doing it, but you know, it makes me question you about, you know, what are your intentions and why do you feel that this person is worth your time to protect 
So, you know, for me, I'm just, you know, my mentality is you're either for me or against me. If you're against me, then I know how to treat you. And if you're for me, then you really going to have to make sure that your actions and words are in alignment. Yeah. I mean, that's why I love your social media, because you are in a word. You're savage. You don't take shit <laughs> from anybody. Like Your social media is like, I do not give a fuck what you think. I'm going to say what I want. I'm going to say what I feel. And if you don't like it, then fuck you. Like, and, and, <laughs> But in the, in the nicest way possible, like you don't do it in a way that is like outwardly fuck you. But you say very clearly and very concisely what you feel and what you think is right. And oftentimes you are calling out racism and you are calling out all this stuff quite directly and I see people when you tweet stuff like that I will look at it and I'll just kind of giggle because I'm like she she knows exactly what she's doing and this other person that's replying doesn't know what the fuck to do and so I love watching you <laughs> engage because you don't <laughs> you don't throw shade you, you throw grenades and you're like here it is here's the real like this is what's happening and I'm not afraid to tell you the truth and I think it's Honestly, that's what happens when you turn 30. Like, I'm about to be 34, and I'm really in my, I don't give a damn about these people so much. <laughs> so that's the result of being 30. Like, seriously, you should really stop caring about being nice and start getting real. As cliche as that is from the real world tagline, it is true. It's, you know, things are just getting too serious to be meek or to be you know, as forgiving or extending olive branches to people who really don't give a damn about you. Yeah. And I think that's what's really hurtful at all is most of all is people not realizing that this person could really give a damn about you. And you're here trying to be their friend and trying to protect them and they wouldn't do that for you at all. And I'm not, I'm not going to be out here looking foolish for anybody, <laughs> you know, except for myself. And I'm not going, and I'm not going to look foolish for myself. So yeah, I do, you know, throw a lot of grenades and I do like that saying that you just did. But I think that people need to hear real talk. And I think that honestly, as to say what people, many of us have been coddled throughout our lives yeah. and been told the truth. So I think sometimes when people see me going as hard as I am or that I do, it's shocking to them, but I'm like, this is the real world. The real world is more than your small circle <clears throat> as a disabled person. It's even bigger than you know, us being on Twitter or whatever platform that we're on. So you know, this is real. And you think my truth is harsh? There are people who are harsh. <laughs> so I am pretty, for some folks, very tame in comparison to how you know, how others are, and honestly, how I would like to be, because I would rather be harsher than what I am, but I try to keep a professional decorum. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I try to keep facts out here, but it, but trust me, I could go way worse if I really want to. I, I mean, would love to see a tweet thread of, <laughs> just once for me, could you just go on there one day and just, just let it go. I will. It's our <laughs> This shows it's probably going to happen one day. It probably will. <laughs> All right, I'm ready. I will stand by, and I'll hand you the grenades as you're ready to throw them. I'm ready for that. Um, I want to move into the thing we're going to talk about today, which is I reached out to you because not only do I love your work and I love what you're doing, and all of that is amazing, but I also wanted to reach out because there was an episode of Queer Eye that came out a few months ago, and, and everybody was like, 
tweeting me and messaging me, Andrew, you have to watch this episode. You have to watch and do a commentary. It's really important because this guy went on the show and he has this company that's called Disabled But Not Really and we don't like it. And so Twitter like blew up because Twitter couldn't handle the fact that somebody had an organization called Disabled But Not Really. And when I initially saw the tweets, I was like, oh, this is a bit cringy. Like, okay, what's going on here? And I didn't realize the full extent of the backstory. So everybody told me that I should watch this episode. It's about this person of color in a wheelchair who who was paralyzed and was made over by the Queer Eye guys. And I, I, I know of Queer Eye because of my queerness, but I don't ever watch it, so I never had seen an episode. But I was like, okay, I could sit down and watch it, but then the more and more I understood that it was about a person of color, I was like, me doing a commentary on this feels wrong and feels like we were just talking about it and feels into like feels like it's leading into a little bit of racism that stuff doesn't feel okay for me so I was like I want to talk to somebody who has lived experience of being a person of color with disabilities before I dare talk about this with my privilege so I loved your work and I immediately tweeted you and was like would you come on the show and talk about this <laughs> so we could have a conversation together so we are going to sit now and talk about this episode of Queer Eye which was season four episode four entitled Disabled But Not Really, and it deals with Wesley Hamilton, who created the, the company Disabled But Not Really. Um, disabled people, when they saw this, like I said, they were really upset because they, they said, and I did some research today on some people who were really angry about it, they said that, that him framing his company Disabled But Not Really, or calling it that, was really inherently negative and really like wrong and problematic what are your thoughts on on the whole like what are your thoughts on wesley what are your thoughts on the episode what are your thoughts on the like the backlash let's go into that i'll start with the backlash because that's how i even got to watch the show i i remember watching the original queer eye that came on i think nbc or one of the show cable shows but i never watched um, the Netflix reboot of it until the Wesley conversation started. So this was my first time watching Queer Eye at all. So I didn't really know what to expect. You know, besides, I knew that there were five guys. I was familiar with Karamo because he used to be on the real world. So, I, so he was the only one of the Fab Five that I knew of. So I was like, okay, let me just kind of see about this. And honestly, I wasn't going to watch the show because I thought it was the white guy. <laughs> until I... Um, Realized he was not white. I was like, okay, let me see what's going on. And my, I guess, spidey senses were tingling because I saw people's reactions. And I'm going to be quite honest, there's a lot of anti-blackness among some non-black people of color activists. I'm not going to name the names, but I keep waiting. Oh, I'm ready for you to drop that tea whenever you, whenever you want it, I'm ready. You know, but when I saw their tweets, I was like, hmm, okay. I may need to check this out. And I was uh, moved to do so by an activist friend named Heather Watkins, who's phenomenal, uh, someone who I actually interviewed for the piece that I'll be, that I wrote that'll be dropping soon about the episode. And she sent me a message. She was like, oh, I'm watching this episode and I'm not really understanding why people were upset. And Heather's someone who's a great friend, who's well-balanced in how she sees things near her, usually on the same page for a lot of things. So her opinion, I value tremendously. So when she told me that, I was like, 
me just go ahead and watch it. It was on the weekend, so I had time. And in the first 10 minutes, Andrew, I was sitting here like, what the hell are people upset about? Like, I was getting mad. <laughs> just thinking about all those reactions that I saw the day or two before or even leading up to the premiere of the season. Because there were rumblings about the name of the organization. Yeah. And I was, I was just amazed during the whole 49 minutes of this episode. And I would just really had my hand to my face like I'm doing now. <laughs> what the hell were these people talking about? And it made me mad because, again, some of the anti-black folks who I peeped were some of the loudest about the episode. So that made me mad. It also made me mad about the fact that these same people who swear to understand intersectionality, both people of color and white folks, did not put that knowledge into practice in watching his story as a black disabled man who has an acquired disability. Um, nor did they take into consideration how black folks view disability because there's a lot of nuances there. And just the fact that there were not any practice of nuances and really taking yourself out the equation and having a broader view that really struck me. And I was like, wow. And that's what made me angry. And that's what made me start to tweet about it because I was really disgusted at the responses, at the fact that, excuse my language, but people just shitted on his episode. And his episode wasn't bad at all. You know, and it really, I, I watched it yesterday and prep for this interview. And it was, you know what? I think way back in the day when I had saw, had seen the rumblings, I think I like tacitly agreed with a lot of these people not realizing what I what it was when I watched it yesterday it blew my mind about how not problematic it was how how kind he was to his disability and to the fact that he wasn't he didn't in no way did Wesley Hamilton ever once in the episode say that his disability was bad say that he felt like he wished he could walk or you know he wished that his disability would go away he did he you know he wished that he could be more independent he wished a lot of things that all of us wish right and you know given his experience i also think it's important to note that he has an acquired disability many of us who who were tweeting about that don't have an acquired disability and so our experiences are extremely different and need to be respected as such so like i i have to say if i acquired disability like he did especially in the way he did he was paralyzed from a gunshot wound mm -hmm. if he acquired it the if i acquired a disability the way he did i might feel the same and he was something that struck me in the, during the episode he was with one of the guys he was saying like this is the first time in in all of my years of being alive that i really smile out of joy being here in my disabled body or something like that being disabled and being in the space with you and and like smiling and i remember watching that part and I actually teared up because I was like wow this person is obviously trying to navigate a journey that there's no handbook for how to navigate when you become disabled yeah. and there's no handbook for how to be disabled and intersectional insert like whatever it is like mm -hmm. there's no way to do that so I think it took me by surprise how and I, I too watched the first 10 minutes I was like what are people upset about <laughs> like what's what <laughs> I don't get what's upset. Like the, one of my favorite parts was when they took him through his apartment and they made it more accessible for him. And he was so excited by this because he could now 
do laundry for himself, he, he could cook better, like, what they did for him with his consultation and trying to, like, and, yeah, it is problematic that they're all the able-bodied guys not really getting it, but they're learning, they're trying to learn. So, like, right. in, in a perfect world, the five, the fab five would be, one of them would be disabled or, you know, or one of them can come out as having an invisible disability. I'm sure one of them does, but they're not talking about it, and I'm sure it's there. Um... So I would have loved to have seen more of that kind of representation. I also think that the way it's framed, because it's a queer episode, they probably spent way more time with him talking about way more stuff than they could get in there. Right. Uh, like, had they had, like, maybe a two-hour doc of this, I would watch that. Like, can we give Wesley Hamilton his own show? I would watch that. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's what was so frustrating, is that just so many nuances was missed, you know, in the I'm gonna say fake outrage. Cause that's how I even that's how I'm looking at it right now about the show. Like from like his him and Karamo, the Karamo's the only black guy of the Fab Five, and just their engagement as black men being vulnerable. Wesley talking about you know his gunshot you know wound and healing, and then him meeting the man you know that shot him. Like those were just very powerful moments that was glossed over by people in our community yeah. and not really understanding what it means to meet the person who caused your disability. Like, and then forgiving him. Like that powerful exchange between those men like that. And we don't see that among black men. You know, we have our stereotypical portrayals of black men that comes to our minds that pervade our media. We don't see black men being vulnerable with each other. We don't see black men forgiving each other, embracing each other. Just that type of positivity there over a situation where if Wesley wanted to hate that man forever, you know, many of us probably feel like he's in, he's within his right to feel that way. But here he is, someone who forgives him and, you know, see him, you know, in a light that's not negative. And even, you know, the, the man that shot him was very surprised at that, too. And him also coming, coming into terms with that. Things missed seeing a black disabled dad. You know, his interaction with his daughter was just so cute and beautiful. Yeah. And yeah. whether she viewed him as being, you know, her Superman, you know, on wheels. Like, just seeing that type of positive portrayal. We don't see disabled men being fathers to begin with in media, much less a black disabled man or any man of color. So just having that powerful portrayal. I know there were some people who felt a ways about the way that his mother talked about caring for him. And as, you know, as someone you know, who's black and has had to be cared for and also be a carer. You know, his mother wasn't saying those things out of shame. That is what we do. And as black women, we do care for our folks. You know, we do care for our loved ones. And that's her child. Like, she's going to make sure that he's okay. And she also going to want to make sure that he's able to take care of himself if she's no longer here. Yeah. So her concern about him being able to be independent, which is something he wants to do, you know, very striking. And I didn't view that as a negative exchange between him and her and their relationship or, you know, just the way that she talked about it. She was just real about it. And to see him tell her thank you, like black women don't get told thank you. You know, so to see him telling her thank you for taking care of me, you know, wasn't out of obligation, but just out of respect for what they both went through as they were both navigating this new transition in life you know just whole new experience that neither one of them were prepared for 
And I think that you're absolutely right about those of us who were born disabled, not understanding the nuances fully of somebody who has an acquired disability. Wesley's only been disabled for seven years. He has his whole life to understand this identity. Whereas many of us have been disabled our whole life and still don't understand. Yeah. So how can we you know, uphold, put him on this unreasonable pedestal? You know, to go, you have to have disability understood by this point or whatever like that. Like that's unrealistic. And, and it's also in some many ways shaming as well. And that was very upsetting to really see that dynamic come into play, particularly from people who should know better about what that looks like and how hurtful that is. So, you know, just really all these dynamics of, of the episode that was just truly missed and not discussed at all in people's reactions or tweets, which is very upsetting to see the omission and just really reminded me how black people, black sailor folks, really are by ourselves, even amongst other people of color. Because nobody has our back. Everybody wants to not be on the bottom, but push us on the bottom. And that's how I felt, you know, in really coming away from watching the episode and just really looking at all these responses is that nobody wants to give black sailor folks the time to really understand who we are, to form our identity, to figure out our place, and to really be supportive in those ways. No one wants to do that. Everybody, and I know certain folks, they're always quick to point the finger at black folks who are either disabled or not if we don't get the messaging right. And some people do need to be called out. I'm not saying that call out are important or don't have a place. However, many folks just want to yell and not listen. And I really feel that in, in this incident, the community was yelling and not really shutting up, being quiet and listening to this man talk about his seven to eight year journey of navigating disability that many of us have had three to four times the number of years in our own journey yeah. and not give him space to learn or just be so quick to criticize him. Because, you know, as I told you in our exchange for the interview, you know, I had a chance to talk to Wesley and what we saw in the episode was exactly how he was in person. And it allowed me to understand his story further than what I thought it was. So we're not even trusting him that he has a common sense or the wherewithal to craft a message about disability in a way that's not harmful. I just think that he's incapable of doing that. And to me, Wesley is able to reach an audience, which is people in the hood, people in his community, that we, as people, disabled folks on the internet, within our own activism work, cannot reach. So for me, he's doing work and fulfilling a role that many of us would not be able to be able to do at all or be able to do effectively. So for me, his work has a purpose for the people he's able to reach, for the people whose language may not be there by disability, but because his language you know, is in a way that's understandable or a way that makes them feel comfortable or just feeling welcoming. They now have somebody they can relate to and to really understand a disability in a more powerful way, in a more positive way, in a more community building way. It's almost like, he, from what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's almost like he's taking the idea of all the disability activism we do in a highbrow 
like academic way and saying, okay, let's take it and put it in language that is accessible to everyone versus like, oh, you have two degrees and you study this so you know what ableism is and you know what this language is. It sounds like he's trying to take his experience and bring it to people who have had similar experiences that we as academics can't really access. Yeah, like people may not know what ableism is, but they've experienced it. They can describe it to you. And it's ableism, whether they know that there's an actual term for it or not. And I think that from talking with him, you know, the name of the organization is letting people know that yes, you're disabled, but that doesn't stop you. That doesn't stop you. You know, and I think sometimes doesn't stop you from having dreams or that doesn't stop you from just doing basic things, you know, like disabled, but not really. It's kind of a play on words in a way, you know, and it's kind of how he sees himself. It's like, yes, I am disabled. I had this thing that happened to me, but I'm not letting it wear me down. You know, I'm not letting it, you know, just take over, you know, my life. And it kind of, can veer, it can come across that inspiration form, but it can also come across as being empowered of knowing that I have this experience, but I also have other things that I can experience as well, you know, and just really, I don't know, just really, for me, just from talking to him, I just really saw and understood better what he was trying to do and what he is doing in his community. And I could definitely see the impact that it's going to have. And it's not rooted in internalized ableism. You know, it's rooted in empowering each other, you know, to really push push ourselves to really fulfill whatever dreams that we have and to be proud of everything that we are in that. You know, it's, it is in some ways for me inspiring to have that type of message because I think that we talk about disability pride, but I think that we don't understand how it's, how much work it takes to get there. Yeah. And I think that what Wesley's doing is instilling within his work people's understanding of what disability pride is that works for them, that works with where they are and where they can go. You know, like his whole journey is about fitness and nutrition. Like is that what's helped him get to where he is. Like learning how to care for himself, learning how to work out and get as buff as we saw him in the episode. I you mean, know. he's a tasty, he's a tasty yeah. man. All right, like, like Wesley, <laughs> call me. Let's have a, let's have a talk. <laughs> <laughs> he's a treat. He's a treat. You know, but you know, just really seeing how he's using something like fitness and nutrition to reach people. You know, I know that me and him, we talked about um, him not understanding there were certain services that he could access after he became disabled, and that in part is due to. You say what people of color, in this case black folks, not always being told about things. You know, us always being the last to know or not knowing at all. You know, so I think that his journey with disability has greatly shaped how he understands disability from his particular lens and how he may see other people view their disabled body through a lens that he once had and is still possibly working through. And honestly, the way that Wesley talks about disability is how Many folks that I know here where I am from in a small town in the hood view disability. You know, so watching the episode, he didn't appear abnormal to me. And that was because of my background. Um, 
but I can see how people who don't have that background could have that type of reaction to his story and miss these key elements in it that made it, you know, powerful, that made it stand out. And it really showed me why he was on that show. You know, I think that the Fat Five, even though their language about disability may not have been on point necessarily, you could tell they had a lot of respect for Wesley. And they yeah. did not pity him. And it, they saw him as inspiring. But it, for me, it wasn't in that toxic way. It was in that, you know, you are somebody who's a great person. You're doing this great work. I have so much respect for you and what you're doing. That's why I'm here giving you this makeover and want to just help you in some small way continue what you're doing. And that's just the takeaway that I got from the Fat Five in their interaction with him. It just, it's, you know, being inspired by what he's doing and it's not in a grotesque way. Um, I think that's also something that we have to, you know, realize is that people can be inspiring and then not be littered with inspiration porn. Yeah. And I know some of us have that, you know, resistance to that word inspiration or inspiring, but some people are just fucking inspiring. Like that's just kind of the way it is. <laughs> like and it's not it's not like I said, it's not like it's dehumanizing or taking away what who or what they are. It's just that wow, you are an amazing person and you're a badass. And so why can't we celebrate people being badasses? You know, I like um, that. I like that a lot. You know, and I just feel like with Wesley and what he's doing with his organization, I think he's just trying to get people to be badasses. He's like, yeah, disabled but not really. Like, yeah, you're disabled, but you have a dream that you want to do. Go for it. You got the support. You got the community that got you. You know, like I don't see why we can't our version of community as a as the collective can't look differently based on different needs or different interactions. It doesn't have to look just one way. And I think that's a problem that I'm seeing within activism that disability has to look a certain way and have to be the right way. And there's multitude of ways to be disabled. Yeah. Wesley is expressing the way that works for him. And it seems to appeal to other people who have the same mentality. And it's not harmful. He's not doing, he's not actively doing harm. He's not actively bringing down the collective. He is navigating this space in a way that is congruent to his community. And if it's working, who am I or you or anyone to wag our fingers or whatever appendage that we have, you know, at him? I mean, I would like to wave certain yeah, appendages at him. <laughs> But <laughs> I, I I don't blame you. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> but I think you're right. I think like I think that oh, I watched the episode and I was I watched it twice to like really understand what I was watching and I took notes. And there, I mean, there were moments where the Fab Five. There was a few things where they were like, "You're gonna roll on out of here," and I was like, oh, "Okay." Like, it, but yeah, I, I, corny. They're, they're quirky and corny. Yeah, but I also realized like they're doing it for TV and they're putting it on TV and they're trying to be their character. I get that. So like, there was some definitely moments where I was like, all right, yeah, like don't do that. Like, okay, but also like, I think it was really powerful just on its face to have a black disabled person on TV talking about that experience. I've until that really and truly, I haven't seen that before. 
We don't. And I honestly, I'm going to be very frank. If Wesley had been white, I probably would have just bypassed this because I am tired of <laughs> white civil folks <laughs> on TV and films. I'm just, I'm done. So it was very nice to see someone who was not white on anything. <laughs> yeah. You know, it has to do with the representation. And then to not just, not just have someone who's non-white, but also it'd be good. You know, it's as good as it can be with able-bodied folks after him. You know, and it not being cringe-worthy. I'd be like, damn, like this sucks. You know, like <laughs> I didn't come away with that film. I'm like, okay, this this wasn't bad. I'm like, I, I like this. I can I can watch this again, and I did watch it again for my article. But every time I watch it, I'm like, wow, this this wasn't too bad. Even with the Fab Five and you know their understanding of disability, which should lean a certain way. But even with them, I wasn't like, oh, God. You know, it, I didn't have that reaction. Like yeah. In watching certain media, and you have either able-bodied or non-disabled folks, you know, talking about disability or interacting with a disabled person, like, oh, my God, this is horrible. I didn't, I didn't cringe as much. I was like, oh, okay, all right. This, this doesn't deter me from the gist of the episode, which is basically about Wesley. I like, wanted to watch more of him. I wanted that. I wanted it yeah. to be not the Fab Five. I wanted somebody with a doc camera to be like, cool, Wesley Hamilton. Let's do a <laughs> two-hour doc oh. about you on, like, you know, the IFC channel or something, and let's make it that. Like, I was ready for something a little bit deeper than the Fab Five 49-minute thing. I wanted it to be, like, seriously, if anybody with... Film money wants to fund a movie about Wesley Hamilton. Like, let me know. I will. <laughs> and also, Wesley, call me your hot. Um, <laughs> I know. Like, and I just really liked it. I really liked how he just he was at front and center, and he was telling his story his way. You know, nobody was talking and for they, him. Yeah, yeah, they let him do that too. They let the. The yeah. five didn't. They let him talk, which I feel was important. And like his, I to go back to some of the things you were saying. His mom too. Like, I think the experience of of black female grief over what she had to go through with him is something we need to talk about more. Yeah, we do. We do. Black women sacrifice a lot. Whether we are forced to or obligated to whatever and his mom you know gave up a lot you know and and i think we have to make space for that for that type of conversation for that type of outlook and there wasn't any anger about that you know from her you know she's very proud of him of what he's become what he's doing but we do need to make space for black women families being caregivers and what it means to put your life on hold for someone else. I know that, you know, I guess for me, I sympathize and empathize, more empathize and sympathize, because that's kind of my story with my grandmother. She had Alzheimer's and, you know, I put things on hold to be there for her, you know, during those years that I graduated from um, grad school, you know, but to her passing. And, you know, nobody thinks about black women and femmies who give up a lot to care for somebody else and what they lose in that process. You know, what they lose is sometimes time. His mom talked about some of their relationships and the things that she went through. And those things are valid to give room for. 
you know, and his mom's young. You know, she's a younger woman. And, you know, what is what does it mean to unexpectedly become a caregiver at a certain age, you know, um, to to your adult child? You know, so it's, you know, it's, it's things like that that was in the episode that I felt that was done respectfully um, with her telling her story and then her and Wesley coming together in that way towards the end, particularly when I mentioned about him, you know, thanking her. I think that's a lot of conversation that we don't have within the community. You know, we focus so much on being cared for, but not about our caregivers and the dynamics of being a caregiver to someone. And what does that look like? That isn't, you know, pitiful driven or anger driven or anything like that, but just the realities of things. And I think that's some of my frustration with our community is that we don't make room for the realities of feelings, of diverse feelings, of feelings that we may be uncomfortable with but are still, you know, important to be a part of the conversation. We don't make space for that. And I feel and I think for me that stood out a lot, you know, in the outrage about the episode is that none of the things were considered at all. None of the things were respected enough to be considered or at least talked about in a way that wasn't uh, toxic. Do you think that, um, I think that, the, I think the only emotion that I think disabled people are, are comfortable expressing is when an, a non-disabled person is ableist against us. And so I think what you're saying is true. I think we need to allow for, the non-disabled community of people that are helping us or or even if a disabled person is also our care, the people who are taking care of us need, I agree with you, they need a space to be heard. Yeah, you know, I think that we're so quick to talk over people or to hush people up because we're so used to not being taken seriously that we miss out on having these more in-depth conversations. I feel like some of the conversations we've had around this tend to be superficial. And I think our reluctance or even our anger about certain things, you know, keep us from really going deeper about what these situations mean for everybody involved. You know, I think there is a place for caregivers. I do think sometimes caregivers do take up a lot of space, you know, which I think has um, helped define the resistance to listening to them. However, there are caregivers who know the balance, know that there is a place for them and when to move aside. And I think that we have to create more balance within our within these conversations so that everybody can feel heard and validated. And I don't, I just really there was just so much there in that episode that I just really wish that our community made room for the nuances like you know, sometimes pops to my head. Like many of us, like you said, was outraged about it. Were you know people who have who've been disabled pretty much their whole life, or at least most of their lives, and we don't really give space and room for people who have acquired disability, particularly those who acquired disability as a young adult or even older. We don't make that room. I think, and I think some of that resistance is the fact that we, some of us, may feel that those who have acquired disabilities don't get the message of the community. You know, they live in this inspiration porn bubble or they feed into that. And yeah, some of them do feed into that. You know, that's real. But many of them don't. 
And I don't feel that. And I think Wesley is an example of one that doesn't feed into that. And how do we create a space to where someone like Wesley could come into place, come into the space, learn, maybe even figure out some things about disability that they may not have thought about before. And it'd be a safe way to do that. Because I know that a lot of people don't want to come into the space in fear of being attacked. I know a lot of people have opinions about things that they don't say out loud because the, because of the quickness to really pile on somebody. So I really think we have to consider how toxic our own space is for people who are newly disabled and who are navigating this new understanding and what it's like to live in these, in these disabled minds and bodies and not willing to toss the baby out with the bathwater and realizing like, okay, this person may need some work, but how can I, if I want to take this upon myself to be a part of their community, what role can I play to assist them in that learning? And if you're not willing to do that work, that's cool. But it's not your job to sit up here and be an attack dog on everybody who doesn't look at disability in the quote unquote right way. Because yeah. we all had to start from ground zero, all of us. Yeah. And I don't think we would give enough room, respect, or or grace for people to start at ground zero and work their way up. I love I love exactly what you said there. The grace, it's grace, it's yeah. humility. It's like, and you know, I have been totally hearing you say that just now. Click something in my brain that was like, oh fuck, I've dealt, I've totally done that, <laughs> and I've been the the attack dog wanting to like attack somebody when I should have sat the fuck down and let them share their story. So thanks for that because it's going to make me reevaluate some of, the, some of the ways that I engage with community on social platforms and just kind of kind of take a couple seats back to reconsider some stuff for myself. So thanks for making that click. I want to um, shift into something that I was thinking about when you're talking. So you're in the South. Um, mm-hmm. You are a black woman. And I want to just understand... What is that experience like? Because we don't hear a lot about disability and blackness already, as we've talked about, but we definitely don't hear, like, black, disabled Southern people. Um, We don't hear enough about that. And so just from your experience, can you kind of give an overview of, like, what's what are the major differences about being disabled in, say, like, like New York versus, like, being disabled in the South? Well, first, the resources and visibility, you know, a lot of the community that gets the loudest or the most attention are those either in DC, New York, or any other big metro city. And that's not the reality. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of us in the South as well as in the Midwest who are doing the work in our communities. I know for me, I plan to stay in the South as long as I can because I realize that we get ignored tremendously uh, within disability spaces. And also the collective on society as well. Um, nobody talks about the lack of resources for uh, disabled people who are in rural areas. Like I said, I'm from a small town. You know, I've just really lucked out to have good doctors and you know a good school system that saw me as important to educate and didn't discriminate against me. Many people don't have that experience, you know, in the South or in the Midwest. And I'm bringing up the Midwest because you know it's. You know, it's rural in many parts of that, um, in many parts of the country as well. And I don't think that folks really listen 
to what's going on here. You know, they think the South is Atlanta, you know, and there's more to the South than Atlanta, <laughs> you know, and I just really wish that our community would make space for Black Sabre Southerners and other uh, Southern folks to really share our stories because, you know, many of us know firsthand what the racism looks like. We know for firsthand what not having the resources because you're in the wrong area or you're, you know, you're the wrong color, you know, or your community's too poor to afford things. We know what that looks like, you know, and I really feel that, you know, there, there are pockets of activism within the South that are doing great work, but they don't get the attention that they deserve. They don't get the support that they deserve, you know, whether just the visibility or the funding. So I think that our community needs to step it up in many ways to really make room for black disabled Southerners, other Southern disabled folks to talk about our experiences. I know that, like I said, I really lucked out. You know, I don't have, you know, luckily horror stories about being a black disabled woman in the South, but that, that's not, you know, that's not standard. You know, I went to a predominantly black school district you know, I've always had my resources of support. So hearing folks who didn't, it's foreign to me. You know, it's not like I haven't experienced some ableism. I have, but luckily none of that interfered with the trajectory of my life. You know, and then going to, being lucky to go to a university who just had a disability coordinator, like I mentioned, and, you know, not, not experiencing severe ableism in that space, again, the luck of the draw with that. So just um, just really understanding how my experience has been different from others. And don't think that I was born with a silver spoon. I grew up in poverty. Like my grandmother, she retired when I started kindergarten and we lived off of our hers and my social security. And luckily she owned the house that you see me in right now. So that made things incredibly different for us. So we didn't right. have to like that you know also growing up in the 90s early 2000s things were quite different economically yeah. you know in the states as well so just being a lot of um just being very lucky in that sense of having someone who was money savvy you know i was very spoiled you know i didn't realize honestly i didn't realize i was poor until i went to college like that's how <laughs> my grandmother really made sure that i had what i need and beyond so um, you know, so just that experience alone, you know, just really, you know, just really helped define who I am, how I look at myself and how I look at those around me. You know, in my community, you know, many people are work. These are working class folks like my clothes. My clothes were new, you know, department store. My cousins got my hand-me-downs, you know, and I'm the only child. So that just kind of lets you know how, you know, the economic situations vary, even though you may have somebody who looks you know, poverty level by the numbers. Yeah. But in reality, it's not that way. At least it wasn't for me, but in comparison to somebody else who may have two parents who are enduring way more. So, you know, growing up here, it really made me more conscious of the differences people can experience just by zip code or just by, you know, if your parents have education or if they finish school or they have a trade or anything like that, how your life can be so much different. And then when you add disability on top of that, if you're lucky to have doctors, you know, for me, I got diagnosed with OI in utero because my mother's 
at LPN and she noticed that I wasn't moving a lot. So that's how she got tested and found out that I had a lie. So that set up me to be able to get the medical care that I needed, yeah. you know, as I was born. I, you know, some kids with OI, their parents, you know, it may take them a year or two to learn if they have OI, you know, so to be diagnosed, particularly if they have a, have the milder form of it. So it's just those things like that that I've just been very lucky to experience. But I know, particularly as a black person, that there's medicalized racism, sexism, ableism, at play that could really have sh- have um, drastically impacted my quality of life if I didn't have doctors that understood what OI was and the different treatments for it that didn't understand that I could have the riding surgery that allows me to walk you know even though I do use a wheelchair full time but the riding surgery just allowed me to be able to transfer and be more independent you know if I if they didn't have that type of knowledge or at least see me valuable as that my whole life would be different. So I think just having that type of understanding of what that type of privilege is really makes me steadfast to really speak out on what it is like to be a black disabled person in the South and understanding those differences just based off of either luck or if your family does have the money or live in the right zip code to where there's an abundance of resources, all those things matter. You know, I know for me right now, I live in a small town. The big city to me is Columbia, which is the capital of the state. So if anything is needed, you have to go to Columbia. You know, luckily for me, my family has always had transportation because there's no public transportation here outside of paratransit. So if you're not able to go to the quote unquote big hospital in the city for a surgery or be able to see a specialist, how are you going to get there? Yeah. You know, so just those things, you know, just the lack of transportation options in between counties or it just within a county can prevent someone from getting the medicalized care that they need for their disabilities or for whatever health concerns they may have, or just to do a wellness check and just make sure that everything's okay, or at least as okay as it can be. You know, those type of things folks don't think about. You know, when you think of bigger cities, people talk about Transportation, but like transportation looks different here in the South. You know, very few cities have a light rail or have taxis, you know, or if they used to have it back in the day, they don't have it now, you know, due to the economic changes within that area. So I don't think that we really talk about particularly how the economic aspects of the South greatly impacts the quality of life and resources that its citizens, its residents have. And that's very important for, you know, black civil folks in the South or other people of color or white folks in the South are enduring. And also dealing with education. You know, for me, my school district um, had money because we had a good number of students within the special education system. So that means that we could afford for people to have aids, you know, have um, different aids for what they need and the resources. Right. You have a lot of poor school districts here that can't afford that. And families are having to fight for their kids to have the basics. So we don't have enough, um, we don't give enough room for the conversation to be had about the education gap that students in the South are experiencing, particularly disabled students. And I know now, I don't know if you follow a lot of stories, but I see a lot of schools getting sued for not providing the basics. I'm like, you guys could really prevent this if you would just, A, follow the law. 
to yeah. begin with. Yeah. See if many of you have the resources that you needed to be able to accommodate these students for their particular needs. So it's just, you know, the economic aspect, the education aspect, and then, of course, the job aspect. Um, being in the South, you may not have transportation to get to work or or there may not be jobs in your town. You may have to move. And what does that look like if you have to move within the state or even out of state for work? You know, and you depend on Medicaid, you know, for your health insurance. You know, what the, what do those factors take into, take into consideration in the decision that you make about your life? You know, these are things that they're not necessarily unique to the South, but they can be a very big factor in how disabled uh, Southern folks move. And the decision that we make, whether we go off to the big city or we make do here, the best way that we can to make it better for others. So there's a lot that gets lost, you know, in conversations about being disabled and Southern that isn't giving, isn't giving a room to really have those constructive conversations and to really support the work that's being done or recognize that there's work to be done and how to go about that. That's such a, I mean, everything you just said could be a whole podcast all by itself. But <laughs> <laughs> like it really could. Like I was sitting there listening to you, being like, I, I, <laughs> there's so much here. Um, this I love this so much, and I want to ask you one more set of questions, cause, cause it's a disability and sexuality podcast, and cool. because I wanna, I wanna kind of, kind of just throw in what it's a, it's expanding to a disability everything podcast. So we did awesome, but I, <laughs> but I wanna expand. I wanna ask you one sexy question. Um, yeah. tell me how sex and disability, particularly flirting and dating, work for you? And do you have any funny, sexy, weird, ableist stories you want to share about all that? Dating as a disabled woman who black men is trash. Fuck <laughs> 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 that off there. I already said, if there is such a thing as a next life, I do not want to be attracted to men in any way, shape, or form. Cause I am tired of dealing with men in this life. I don't want that curse in the next life. I don't, I don't want it. Unless I come back as a man and is gay and queer, I don't want to deal with men as a woman. I just uh, want to get that for a record. I mean, <laughs> for the record, as a disabled queer man, you don't want to deal with able-bodied men either. They're also trash. <laughs> able-bodied queer well, men damn. are also trash. <laughs> well, damn, Andrew. I... Look, I know men are trash, but at least I feel like as a man, I would kind of understand male thinker a little better because I don't get how y'all think. I don't <laughs> don't understand. I don't understand how you think. I don't care. He's like white, black, doesn't matter, disabled, able-bodied, non-disabled. I don't understand y'all <laughs> at all. So I am navigating these dating streets the best way I can through prayer meditation and trying not to cuss people out <laughs> but i have to say that i've been having having my hot girl summer vibe going on you know thanks to megan the stallion so that has made it very fun to just be out here flirting um just not really caring you know just being carefree um not really taking guys seriously unless they're presenting as serious and just really learning that because i am you know, a hopeless romantic you know, and that has not always done me well. <laughs> oh, I like that. I would have never, you know, because your public persona is so, like, like, so direct. 
I would never have guessed you would have said you're a hopeless romantic. I am, like, I am a real softie on the inside. I just can't be that way on social media. Yeah, because <laughs> you know, people but, are, yeah. Yeah, pe- people are assholes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. On there, but I am, I, I love the ideal love. I love chick flicks, all those supposed movies like that. Love it, you know, all that jazz. But it's just, it's just really hard to find guys who allow themselves to be vulnerable, you know, allow themselves to really be in their feelings and to be truthful because <laughs> you guys always tell the truth about what you got going on, what it is that you want. And I'm sitting here trying to figure things out and I'm like, it shouldn't be this hard. And I think that men make dating hard and it doesn't have to be. And that's where a lot of my frustration lies. Like as a disabled woman, you know, I do get, um, you know, responses from guys, you know, just all types of guys. Some of them have been inspiration, not in, but I would say inspiration, but maybe ableist leaning as in like, oh my gosh, I'm praying for you. I'm like, I don't, I don't want you to pray for me. I want you to date me and screw me. Like that's, that's what I want. I don't want you to, to think I'm just this little precious butterfly because I am not by any means. Like, I'm into kink. You know, I, um, and into BDSM, so people don't really see those. Wow, let's go there for one second. So, yeah, what yeah. what uh, what uh, BDSM things are you into? Um, I am true to the daddy dom little girl dynamic. Um, oh, wow, this is the whole yeah. part of you that I that is uh, my my <laughs> eyes are open right now. I am listening. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So before Tumblr went to hell, um, that's where I discovered. Uh, really the BDSM community is where I connected with um, other disabled folks who were either into the lifestyle or were learning like me at the time. So yeah, and that's where I was like, oh, okay, because I knew about BDSM, but I didn't know about the different dynamics, you know, of, you know, dominant submissive, master slave. Right. And then I stumbled upon Daddy Dom and Little Girl. And I'm just like, okay, that one I can do. It doesn't, it's not as stringent as the others, for me, being a little girl, it allows me to be more of that playful side because my work is always serious. Yeah. You know, it's like always talking about either race stuff, disability stuff. And so if I'm going to be in this dynamic, I want it to be something where I can kind of let my hair down, where I can do my little activities. Kind of like the color. You know, I do a lot of the adult coloring stuff. And sometimes, even every once in a while, I give it like a kid's training book because I don't want to have to do those um, very... Um, complex um, drawings and anything like that. I just get to be playful and I don't have an outlet where I can be playful in. So I really like that type of dynamic. And sometimes, you know, I can be a switch, you know, I can be a dummy if I want to. And Oh, I'm sure. I'm not surprised at all that you can be a dummy. I'm not surprised at all. (laughs) You know, and be able to have that assertive side come out in a fun way. Um, And be able to find somebody like that. So I think that people don't really see us as having that type of complexity, you know, or just being very kinky, you know, just very free. Like I do some erotic writing, you know, um, nothing too hardcore, but, you know, I have a little smut here and there that I've written. And oh. that for me is my creative writing outlet since everything else I write is more either academic based or just very serious. That's my, I can just let my imagination just go completely left field and just have fun with it. 
and write about erotica from a disabled um, black woman perspective, you know. So or why whatever. isn't that a podcast? Like, can we can we make <laughs> that a show? I'll listen to that. That's great. But I I need to work out some more pieces because I I would like to have an ebook. Like, think of a little bit of Zane, like Sex Chronicles one. If you ever read that, where just the sex stories, I would like to do that, but from a disabled lens. Um, that's like what that's on my long to do list. There, there are some people that I know in the black community who do sex stuff. Like I'm thinking of Kevin Patterson. I'm thinking of like I should connect. The, I should connect you with some yeah, people that I know because this. Would, I would love to meet folks like that. This would be I to he, to have a disabled woman's like kink diaries or like kink stories or whatever. Like would be so powerful because we don't see that. Um, nope. Don't. And just to kind of learn about the kink community more, because I haven't had the opportunity to really be in that space, like physically, you know, go to you know, the meetups or the conferences, but that's something that I'm looking to do when I move next year to Charlotte and just really meet folks in that space and seeing how accessible and inaccessible that space is and, you know, just meet with people there. Like, that's a part of the community that I want to be in and to be able to express myself and hopefully find a partner who's you know into that as well so that's kind of my journey right now in dating is being true to myself you know my likes and you know finding a partner that is um is open to dating someone who's disabled I'm not scared of it or view me as inspiration because I'm trying to get laid <laughs> so I don't need you to view me as Yes, I'm cute and I'm bubbly, but I want to be freaky too. So, so let so see all of me and not just the one aspect that you want to see. There so. are so many possible titles for this episode right now. And we saved the best for last, right? <laughs> there are so many. I'm sitting here like, what do I think this episode took a turn for the for the amazing, and I'm here for it. Like, wow. Uh, you know, but we say the best. We had to get the professional stuff done, and then we had the fun time. And now we got the and now the fun time. Um, this was such a <laughs> this was such a fucking awesome interview. I had the most fun doing this, and I've been looking forward to it for a long time. So I really appreciate you taking the time today. If you could, for one last thing, if there was one thing that we should shine a bright light on about disability, what would you say? I say that disability. It's the best thing that could happen to me. I love my body. I love the life I have lived, the perspective that I have. And that disability isn't to be pity. You know, I don't want to be pitied. I want to be respected. I want it to be loved and and appreciated. So disability is, for me, a blessing. And I get to meet incredible people like you. And we get to have these laughs and share these stories and talk the truth of our community and society and you know it just it's just beautiful disability is beautiful oh my heart just swelled like a thousand pieces it's (laughs) amazing so this was great i'm gonna end the interview here but before i let you go how do people get a hold of you how can they follow your work how can they support you because i think more people should well you can find me at ramfrealvoice.com where you see my blog and my thoughts if you want me as a speaker, I have information about that on my website. 
or as a consultant on disability, either with intersectionality, race, um, inclusion, when it comes to your events, employment, whatever the topic, I probably have talked about it in depth. So I'm your girl for that. I also have a Patreon that you can support. I saw that you became a patron, so thank you, Andrew, for I that. I did, I did, because I realized I wasn't one, and I was like, oh, I got to support more disabled <laughs> people, so I better just hit that subscribe button. So thank you for that, but you can also become a patron where I give a little bit more in-depth with certain um, topics that I talk about. I do a top five list every month of things that I'm either reading, listening to. Um, I support one black disabled, uh, one black uh, woman of femi um, creator a month. And I highlight their work. So that's my way of giving back for those of you who have supported me. So you can find my Patreon, the same name, uh, Wrap Your Voice with Vilissa. Uh You can find me on Twitter at Vilissa Thompson, at Wrap Your Voice. I'm everywhere. You can find me. Amazing. And I'll make sure that all that's in the show notes. And seriously, if you're listening and you need a speaker, hire her. Cause... And also, if you want to holler at me on the person tip, I'm single, ready to move. <laughs> <laughs> yes! <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> if you want to date Vilissa, which, I mean, of course you do, let her know. <laughs> um, this was so fun. I had the best time. Thank you for for sharing your stories, being vulnerable, and, and also talking about why I wanted to have you on was to shine a bright light on racism within the community on this podcast. Because, like I've been saying for a few weeks now, Disability After Dark is expanding from just a sex podcast to a disability and sexuality podcast so this was a great conversation and one that i think is long overdue so Vilissa, thank you so much and we'll talk very soon thank you andrew and i look forward to being back uh i will find a way i'm gonna we're gonna talk right now about finding a way to get you back because <laughs> that that last 10 minutes i was like whoa that came out of left field we need more of that so yes please <laughs> yes please very much yes. all right Vilissa, thanks so much and we'll talk very soon all right bye All right, friends, that's another episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on sex and disability. My name is, of course, Andrew Gerza, and thank you so much for listening and helping the show go. I really appreciate that you all listen and that you come back every week, and I love doing it, and I love shining a bright light on these topics, so thank you. If you want to follow my work, you can head over to www.andrewgerza.com, where you'll find my writings, some cool videos I've been in, and you'll see where I've been talking, where I've been doing talks. And if you want to hire me to talk, you can do so there as well. If you want to follow me on the social media, you can put in all my handles on Insta, Twitter, and Facebook at the Andrew Gerza. If you want to follow the podcast specifically, you can follow us on Twitter at DisAftDarkPod or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash disability after dark. This show is a completely independent production. I literally record the show here in my bedroom in Toronto, and that's awesome. So if you want to support this fully independent program, you can head over to patreon.com slash disability after dark, and you can pledge $1 a month to get the show early and get really cool perks like that. And I, I will give you a shout out on the air and thank you for your support. It would be super awesome if you could also leave a five-star review 
on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast so that this show all about sexuality and disability, something we don't talk about enough, can get more traction and more people can hear about the show. Lastly, if you want to be a part of Disability After Dark, you can submit your suggestions, story ideas, or your minisodes to our email inbox, disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, we'll be back next time, right here on the program Shining a Bright Light on Sex and Disability, Disability After Dark. New episodes of Disability After Dark will be available every Thursday on your favorite podcast app. Also available to Patreon subscribers one day early on every Wednesday. Thanks for listening. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Triple Content Creations with music by Chris Ujiuchi. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright 2019.